it's a worldwide problem. So it's been estimated that air pollution causes about 4.2 million premature deaths every single year. And many of these are in India, Pakistan, parts of China and Africa. So you have areas where people's lives are really being shortened quite significantly by exposure to outdoor air pollution. And that seems like a massive and pressing problem. In terms of air pollution, there's a lot of quite small interventions that can be done. Climate change is in some ways a harder problem to solve, partly because it's a much longer problem to solve. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, and welcome to a very special show about research that's helping society move towards net zero emissions. My name is Simon Moore, and I write and talk about climate change for the Priestley International Centre for Climate at the University of Leeds in the UK. Over the next hour, I'll be talking to a variety of people from the University of Leeds who all share one thing in common. They're all deeply concerned about the impact of climate change on humanity, as am I. They're all committed to trying to prevent a dangerous rise in temperatures, so I thought I'd chat to them about their inspiring research. Very shortly, I'll be joined by Dr. Kat Scott to discuss the important role of trees and forests in tackling climate change. Then I'll be speaking to Dr. Kirsty Pringle about her citizen science project in Bradford, looking at how air pollution impacts children's health. After that, we'll hear from Yefim Fogel about a well-being economy, a climate and ecological emergency bill, and the community group Our Future Leads. And finally, we'll hear from Dr. Louise Ellis about what the University of Leeds is doing to reduce its own contribution to climate change aiming for net zero carbon emissions by 2030, just 10 years time. This extra special episode is going out across three platforms, the Australian podcast Climactic, Bradford Science Festival through BCB Radio, and the University of Leeds' research showcase, Be Curious. So hello, welcome, and thank you for listening, wherever you are in the world. We've got lots to discuss, so let's dive right in. First up is Dr. Kat Scott. She's a university academic fellow in Biosphere Climate Interactions, based at the School of Earth and Environment at the University of Leeds, and she's director of the Leeds Ecosystem, Atmosphere and Forest Centre. Kat's work specialises on the ability of trees to remove carbon dioxide from the air and how planting and restoring forests can combat climate change. Thank you for joining me, Kat. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. Now, before we talk about trees, I was wondering if you could first explain what net zero emissions actually means. Yeah, net zero is a a term that's being used quite a lot at the moment, and it's not always completely clear exactly what what it means. So we know that at the moment we're, we're pumping lots of greenhouse gases into the 
atmosphere from all sorts of different sources. But what net zero means, we've got to reduce our emissions to a small amount as possible. Then anything that's left over, we're doing things that enable us to try and take carbon dioxide out of the air so that we end up with this kind of zero level once you've balanced things out. And net zero targets are being declared by countries, cities and even institutions like our own University of Leeds. Why are net zero targets suddenly so popular, do you think? I think they've suddenly gained quite a lot of attention because a couple of years ago, the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published a report on trying to limit warming to only one and a half degrees or the, the sort of the impacts of, of, of limiting warming to one and a half degrees. And I think it was in that report that they really laid out for the first time quite starkly that not only do we need to reduce our emissions, but that we do need to be getting to this net zero level. I think until then, we'd sort of had this idea, we've got to get the emissions down, get them down as quickly as possible. But until that report, we didn't have that kind of really clear message, they need to get to zero. Yeah, so people are sort of waking up to the urgency and the fact that we need to go as far as having kind of zero further impact on on the climate. Absolutely. And net zero is about balancing our emissions with a way of removing them from the air. So where do trees fit in with achieving net zero? Yeah, so the the idea of net zero and and having ways of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, there's, there's kind of lots of ways that we could potentially do that. So some people are working on things like chemical technologies that might enable us to do that. But trees are something that we know they're already taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere just as part of their natural way of of existing. So as people will probably remember from school, trees take carbon dioxide out of the air during the process of photosynthesis and they, they store a certain amount of that carbon as they grow. So the process of a tree getting bigger is literally, you can see it accumulating carbon and that's what it's doing. So They're sort of a a reliable technology and we simply need to have more of them in order to be taking more carbon dioxide out of the air. To take it to the extreme, would it be possible to plant our way to net zero targets? To put it simply, no. We know that the trees and forests are, are doing a huge job in terms of the amount of carbon that they do take out of the atmosphere and planting more trees will help. But unfortunately, our emissions of, of greenhouse gases are so out of balance with what the natural world can can cope with in terms of this natural process of carbon uptake that we wouldn't be able to plant our way out of this problem. So when people talk about trees helping us get to net zero, what we're really saying is that once we've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions as much as we possibly can, we're still likely to have a couple of percent left over that we haven't developed technological solutions to eliminate. And the idea there is that by expanding our forests and planting more trees, those trees will be able to take up that that residual carbon. So we're really only talking about a small contribution in terms of our overall level of, of greenhouse gas emissions at the moment. And can you tell us about your work on the white rose forest in Yorkshire? Yeah, the, the white rose forest is um, it's the community forest that Leeds sits within and it also includes the, the local authorities that, that surround it. Um, so it's an initiative that's led by the local authorities, but it involves national organisations like the Woodland Trust and the Forestry Commission. 
And the idea really is through partnership to enable the, the planting of more trees and the creation of more forests. And what we've been doing with them is to help the, the region as a whole to understand the level of, of tree planting and, and woodland creation that's going to be required in order to help these regions and these specific local authorities try and meet their climate targets. Some people might have heard of a kind of northern forest. What could this really kind of look like and feel like for, for people that, that live in Yorkshire? Yeah, the, the idea of the northern forest is to try and have a sort of continuous woodland that, that runs right across the country. So people might have heard over the past couple of years about plans to, to plant millions of more trees to make that a reality. The idea behind it is that it would be a combination of new woodlands and also efforts to kind of join up our existing woodlands so that we have this like continuous tree cover across the north. And a key part of it is not just to have these big areas of woodlands that are really far away from from where people live, but a big part of it is to try and bring those woodlands closer to where people are and improve their access to nature. And for people that are interested in trees and maybe tree planting, is there a kind of community element to this? Is there other ways for people to, to get involved? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the planting ends up being done by community groups in coordination with local charities. And, and so the best thing to do is to have a look at what your local authority or your local community forest is, is doing. So um, you can look for those bits of information online. Um, it's not going to be about having kind of big industrial tree planting going on. This is all about getting people involved. Fantastic. And I know you've also done some research looking at trees on the University of Leeds campus with the sustainability service and you're expanding that to trees in the city of Leeds. Can you tell us a bit about that work and why trees are important in urban areas in addition to these big woodlands? Yeah, so over the past few years we've been with the with Leeds City Council and with the sustainability service at the university and we were really interested in seeing what kind of benefits the trees on the university campus were providing. So to find that out we did a survey of, of all the trees that we had. We ended up having over 1,400 trees on the university campus. And we had volunteer staff and students involved in, in surveying those trees. And what this enabled us to do was to find out how much carbon those trees are storing, how much pollution they're potentially removing from the air. And a key part of this was that we managed to look at the kind of relative benefits that are provided from a big mature tree and then the sort of smaller stature new replacement trees that might get planted if, if one is removed. When development happens and, and trees are cut down we often and particularly in, in Leeds there's a policy to replace those mature trees with three new trees and we found that it takes on average it takes about 25 years before those three new trees are actually the same benefit as that one mature tree that was removed. So we're working with the local authority at the moment to think about how we could try and make a kind of more representative replacement policy. Thinking about the university, if you're based at the university, then we've got an online map on the LEAF website that, that shows where all the trees are uh, and gives a bit of information about the species and uh, their size and what they're doing. So do have a look on the, on the LEAF map if you've got a favourite tree on the campus and you want to find out about, a bit more about what it's doing. I think trees are kind of something that we kind of take for granted. We, we see them all around us and we, we don't necessarily appreciate the, the sort of power and uh, the ability they've got really to, to help us combat the climate crisis. I think there's a lot of public support and, and love for trees. So how do you see their role in terms of getting public support, maybe getting the public to help 
fund or as we said before plant these these forests that we need yeah that's a really important point to make because trees are about so much more than just carbon we know that people really really value having access to to trees whether it's in their own garden or whether it's being able to get to a green space and and spend time kind of surrounded by nature and I think whilst we might be looking at quite a specific scientific aspect of trees and and how they might help us contribute to mitigating climate change I think the the role that they have in terms of improving people's lives and uh, allowing people to spend that time in nature is something that is probably much much more important and so I think we're, we're interested in doing some work now to think about how we try and capture that and how we try and represent that value that they bring to people's lives when we think about how to go about planting these new forests it's not a case of just plant as many trees as possible we have to think about the kind of trees the kind of woodlands we're creating we have to make sure that they're accessible to people and so I think, yeah, you're exactly right. There's, there is a big appetite for more woodlands and, and more trees, but we have to think about the way that we do it in order to, to try and make sure that as many people as possible have access to them. We've got a low percentage of, of the UK actually covered by forests at the moment, especially compared to, to other countries in Europe, for example. I guess one of the key challenges is what the land is currently being used for, who owns it. So how are you kind of using your research to help break down those barriers and, and how do you actually go about transforming landscapes from, from current use to woodland? We're not just sitting around with acres and acres of spare space in this country that's not doing anything that we could put woodlands on. We use most of the space that we've got and a lot of it is, is used for agriculture. It's not about saying farmers must all suddenly stop farming and and cover their land in trees one of the things we can think about is how we maybe integrate more trees into agricultural landscapes or how we develop systems that actually enable landowners and land managers to be generating some revenue from from having trees on, on their on their land so if they do decide to to move away from from whatever they're using their land for at the moment and allow it to regenerate then there has to be a way that those that those landowners can can generate some revenue from that in order for that to be sustainable and so that's one of the things that we're hoping to to look at in the next couple of years is is how we really go about um putting those systems in place in a in a fair way to make sure that that this actually can happen in a in a sustainable way in this country that's great and for any listeners that perhaps want to get involved maybe they they have got an appetite for for helping to plant one of these trees what's the best way for them to find out a bit more or to get involved i know in in leeds and i'm sure a lot of local authorities are the same there'll be a lot of friends of groups who are kind of community groups that that do various activities to look after their local green spaces or to plant more trees and that's a great way to get involved in your in what's going on in your local area so just have a look online at what your local authority recommends that's great well thank you very much for for chatting to me kat keep up the awesome work i mean i'm i'm a fan of trees i like climbing in trees um, so I'm, I'm certainly crossing my fingers for for more of them uh, in future especially up north thanks simon um, so do keep an eye out for those new forests check out the white rose forest website to help support them so that was dr kat scott from the school of earth and environment at the university of leeds Now we're moving from trees and woodlands to a more urban setting. Dr. Kirsty Pringle is a research scientist at the University of Leeds, 
based at the Institute for Climate and Atmospheric Science. She's here to talk to us about air quality in the city of Bradford. Thanks for joining me, Kirsty. Hi. Could you start by explaining the link between climate change and air quality? In some ways, it's a bit of a tricky question because air pollution and climate change have two very different issues. But like so many things in our Earth system, made much more complicated by the fact that the two things can interact. At its very simplest level, air pollution is basically the introduction of a species into the atmosphere that can harm human health. So any new gases or particles in the atmosphere that are introduced as a result of human activity and that when we breathe them in can make us less healthy. But if you think about the link between climate change and air pollution, you can think of it in two ways around. One is that climate change can affect the amount of air pollution we have On the other hand, some of the air pollutants that we're interested in that have an effect on our health are climate forces, so they can affect climate change. If we think about the first hand first, if we think about the effect of climate change and air pollution, one of the most visible things of that that we've seen recently is is all the wildfires. So I'm sure you know that climate change is associated with an increase in temperature, increased dryness. And when you have a, a warm, dry atmosphere, the land dries out, so wildfires are much more likely. And you'll have seen the recent images coming from America this year and Australia last year, where you've got these huge big smoke plumes that are traveling over cities. And that's actually causing an an air pollution issue as well, because all these people are breathing in the smoke from the fire, which is causing damage to their lungs. So it's a very kind of direct link between the climate change and the air pollution. And for those of us uh, not living in America or Australia and affected by wildfires, Air pollution is a sort of invisible threat to our health. Can you explain what some of the health impacts are of breathing in polluted air? Yeah, sure. So I should say that we do have wildfires in the UK as well. So there have been wildfires in the UK which have affected our health. But air pollution has been increasingly shown to have a harmful effect on pretty much almost every organ of our body. So there's been research that's shown exposure to air pollution can be linked to increases in lung disease, increases in heart disease, but also other things like dementia and diabetes and even obesity. And the way it works is is that basically air pollution causes stress to our body and that increases, it speeds up the agings of of our lungs and other organs. And that stress basically just damages our body, so it makes us more vulnerable to diseases. And in some ways it's not surprising because we breathe about, what, 15, 20 times every minute. And every time we breathe, we're taking in about half a litre of air. So during the day or during the course of our lives, a huge amount of air is passing in and out of our body. So it's a massive exposure route for even if small concentrations in the air are coming in and out of our bodies all day. So we're exposed to these. But you're right, it's invisible. We don't think about it. We don't think about breathing. It's just a natural act. But what is really surprising to me is that the effects of air pollution I assumed when I started this that it would affect towards the end of our lives and the likelihood of increasing cancers and things like that are are higher as we age. But the effect of air pollution is seen at every stage of our life, including before we're even born. So there's been studies, there was a study in in Bradford where they measured the concentration of air pollution that pregnant mums are exposed to. And they found a really strong correlation between high levels of air pollution during pregnancy and the birth of children that had smaller head circumferences and lower birth weight. So these children, a smaller head circumference and lower birth weight 
is associated with adverse health effects later on in life. So these children were born less healthy as a result of the exposure of the mums to air pollution. Um, there's a different study in King's College London that found that children exposed to air pollution actually had smaller lung volume. So these are children that are growing up in London, they're living in quite a polluted area, and their lungs are actually physically smaller than children that are growing up in a less polluted area. So this obviously it, it damages their, their ability to be fit and healthy later in life because they're, they're impeded with this. So childhood is a very vulnerable time when it comes to exposure to air pollution. Uh, and you mentioned Bradford there. Now, I understand you have a citizen science project starting soon looking at air quality in the city of Bradford. Can you tell us a bit about that project? Absolutely. Um, it's such an exciting project. We're really exciting, excited to have it going ahead. So there's a lot of evidence that's shown that children are particularly vulnerable to air pollution. And there's increasing evidence that shows that it's actually one of the times when children are most exposed to air pollution is when they're travelling to and from school. But what we don't know is we don't know how children's exposure to air pollution varies throughout the day. But if we did know that, then we would be able to come into some interventions to try and reduce the exposure to air pollution. So what we're doing in Bradford is we're training up over 200 children from across 12 different schools in Bradford, and we're training them to be citizen scientists, and we're getting them to carry small portable air pollution monitors with them. So these monitors will measure the amount of particulate matter in the air, so the amount of tiny, tiny particles that children can breathe in. And basically what the kids will do is as they leave for school in the morning, they'll pick up their rucksack and whatever else they take to school, and they'll also pick up this monitor. And this monitor will measure the amount of pollution in the air as they're walking to and from school. And from that information, because we're doing it in 12 schools across Bradford, we'll be able to generate a map, a kind of really detailed map of the concentration of pollution in Bradford and how it changes. And one of the reasons we've chosen Bradford is partly because it, Bradford is also the home to Born in Bradford, which is a really interesting research organisation which is tracking the health and well-being of a subset of children born in Bradford. They have lots of access to medical data so they can look at things like whether a child's asthma rates are higher in polluted areas or not polluted areas. And the other reason the study is happening in Bradford is because next year Bradford is going to get a clean air zone. So this is a zone similar to in London, where you've got uh, an area where most polluting vehicles will be charged to enter the city. And although clean air zones are quite a popular mechanism for reducing the amount of pollution in the city centre, there's not actually been that much evaluation done in terms of what effect they really have on health, especially children's health. So what we're going to do in this study is we're going to measure the amount of pollution that the children are exposed to before the clean air zone, and then also after the clean air zone. And we should be able to see to what extent how effective the clean air zone is, whether it's really making a difference to what the children are breathing in. And then with all the additional health information, we can look at whether the children's, not just are they exposed to less pollution, but will, do they have improved health outcomes? Are, are there less admissions to hospital? Is there less asthma diagnosed? Bradford's really a city of science when it comes to children's health. You can really use all that information to dig in to understand what's going on in the city. And hopefully we can inspire some kids to tell them a bit about science and to kind of give them a, the experience of being part of a real research project. Well, that sounds fantastic. Can you paint a bit of a picture for, say, kids that might be interested in, in getting involved in becoming a bit of a mini scientist for, for a little while? Yeah, absolutely. So we're recruiting 12 schools to take part. Four of these schools are going to be right in the centre of Bradford, four towards the edge of the clean air zone and four far away from the clean air zone. So they can really look at, see how the clean air zone changes. 
and for the kids in the schools taking part, it's going to be year five and six children. It shouldn't be hopefully too much a disruption to their lives. It's really just an extra thing for them to carry on the way home to and from school. But we will teach them a little bit about how the instruments work and provide a little bit of information and some activities for the, the teachers to do with the children. So hopefully we can we can make it fun and enjoyable for the kids and, and do a little bit of learning in the classroom. So we've trialled it with a school in Bradford called St Stephen's and um, because they've really enjoyed it, we've taken them the monitors out to the park. We've walked through the park with one group of kids and close to the road, alongside a busy road with another group of kids. And we've had a look and see how the concentrations vary. And it's as you would expect, but you can see not only close to the road, you have higher concentrations, but sometimes concentrations peak when a big lorry or a big bus is going past. So the kids really enjoyed seeing that. They enjoyed seeing the change in concentrations as particular events happen. And they came up with some brilliant suggestions that so the children have had a, have had a bit of an input into the design of this project. So they've been they've been able to suggest things that we should be looking at and things to take into account when we designed it. That's brilliant. And during COVID, there's been a bit of a push for low traffic neighbourhoods and making roads more accessible to pedestrians, cyclists, and also children. There are also schemes with schools to shut roads to vehicles and reduce idling cars. How beneficial can these schemes be for students and for teachers? I think they can be really important for a couple of different reasons. One is they're very visible. So they have this project called School Streets where they close the road close to the schools. And so parents have to drive to school, then they have to drop the kids off a little bit further away. And this is really important partly because it depends on the geography of the school, but certainly at the school my kids go to, a lot of the parents that are dropping the, the kids off they park just outside the school and often leave the engine on, which means if you're walking past, the children are basically walking through a plume of idling cars. And so this results in quite high exposure during quite a short period of time. But if you think of how small a child is and how close it is to the exhaust of a car, they're getting quite a lot of exposure during that time. And I think a lot of the stuff around school streets is not only are you reducing air pollution in the streets, you're making the street a safe place to play. Just you know, they, they, they close them off for a couple of hours at drop-off time and pick-up time and things like that. So the children understand. So it's kind of really giving a bit of the street back to the community. So they can be really, really popular. You know, it goes back to this thing that air pollution is invisible. And it is invisible. And we all forget it. I mean, I get into my car and drive around sometimes as well. And I don't actively drive around thinking, goodness, I'm polluting the atmosphere while I'm doing this. So it's really just a very visible reminder there was so much interest in the fact that air pollution dropped during lockdown. It was really dramatic. The British Lung Foundation did a survey of asthma sufferers during lockdown, and they found that their asthma symptoms were much less severe during the low pollution episode during lockdown. So you really kind of brings home the idea that air pollution is invisible, but it's having a real effect on people's day-to-day lives. And I think certainly with the new generation of children, as they grow up and they kind of turn into society you know is this is their world we want to kind of explain to them what can be done which to improve the world that they're going to grow into that they're going to inherit so I think things like that they're really visible reminders and with the school streets a lot of it you kind of get a bit of community involved a community effort and that's an added benefit I'm kind of relating this to the, the bigger picture of climate change and net zero is improving air quality more or less important than getting to net zero emissions and how do you think we should be prioritizing our efforts 
I mean, it's very tricky. I'm an air pollution researcher, so I'm biased. I mean, I think air pollution has a very direct effect on a lot of people's lifestyles. So I've talked mostly about, about the UK, but it's a worldwide problem. So it's been estimated that air pollution causes about 4.2 million premature deaths every single year. And many of these are in India, Pakistan, parts of China and Africa. So you have areas where people's lives are really being shortened quite significantly by exposure to outdoor air pollution. And that seems like a massive and pressing problem. So I think in that sense, it's really, really important. And in terms of air pollution, there's a lot of quite small interventions that can be done. Um, climate change is in some ways a harder problem to solve, partly because it's a much longer problem to solve. So the good thing about air pollution, as we saw during lockdown, is most of the species that we call air pollutants, if we stop emitting them, they only last in the atmosphere for a couple of weeks at most. So something like lockdown, you saw very dramatically, if we stop driving cars, then the concentrations fall very, very quickly, which isn't the same with carbon dioxide. You've got this much longer timescale and this kind of long Earth effect, um, which I think makes climate change much more, you know, getting to next year much more challenging. But I mean, both are, I think, equally important. Air quality is one that's it's really interesting to work with communities on, because especially working with school children and parents, because people are genuinely very concerned. And I think it's not hard to drum up interest. It's not hard to have a conversation about air quality because people are already concerned. People already know that it's it's potentially damaging their health and their children's health. So it's quite nice to engage the community on it. It's, it's very satisfying, that, especially if you can say, look, we can not only can we see the problem, but here's some two or three ways that we could fix it quite relatively, quite easily. So for that, I think air pollution definitely is, is an important one to prioritise. That's excellent. Well, I understand it's uh, November that you're starting your citizen science project. What would you um, suggest for listeners that are interested, would like to find out more or maybe want to get involved in the project? Oh, great. So we've got most of our schools signed up, but not all of them. So if you're either a parent or a um, teacher in a primary school in Bradford, then feel free to go to the Born and Bradford website and drop us an email if you think that you might be interested in taking part. We're always interested in, in working with community groups and, and things like that. So feel free to get in touch. The other thing that we're doing is we've got this lovely documentary about the work that we're doing in Bradford, which has been shown in Bradford Science Festival and also part of Be Curious. So um, it's on YouTube. Search for Born in Bradford. It's the first film that comes up. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for talking to me, Kirsty. And I hope the Citizen Science Project goes well, despite the difficulties that I'm sure you're going to be looking to overcome with the pandemic at the moment. Thanks very much. And that was Dr. Kirsty Pringle from the Institute for Climate and Atmospheric Science at the University of Leeds. You're listening to a Priestley Centre podcast about net zero for Bradford Science Festival and Be Curious with me, Simon Moore. So we've already heard about some of the benefits of tackling climate change, such as more green space, healthier and longer lives. And now we're going to shift to focusing on well-being and quality of life. Yafim Fogel is a PhD researcher from the Sustainability Research Institute at the University of Leeds, studying ecological economics. He's also an activist and a core part of the community group, Our Future Leeds. Thanks for joining me, Yafim. Thanks for having me, Simon. So firstly, what exactly is ecological economics and why is it important? 
so ecological economics is a school of thought in economics, a heterodox school of thought in economics. So that means it's kind of critical of, of the mainstream. And it essentially investigates the interaction of the economy with society and with the biophysical environment. And then looks in particular at how we could change the way that the economy works to tackle social issues such as inequalities, such as poverty or deprivation, as well as environmental issues such as climate change or other elements of sustainability. And, and that's important because they are huge issues and because they are fundamentally linked to how the economy is being operated. And so it needs kind of questioning and tackling the logic and the approach of how the economy is being run for what goals a lot of these things are actually linked to quite fundamental assumptions and worldviews, such as does the economy kind of sit in a vacuum or is it actually like embedded in social institutions in a biophysical environment? What is value? What do we value in, in society? What is progress? How do we measure that? That's great. It strikes me there that it's trying to bring economics in line with the environment and not just have it sitting beside it in its own sphere can you tell me a bit about the kind of well-being focus and why that's so important to net zero and climate change? When we think about tackling climate change, we need to go to why are we actually doing this? And I think the, the fundamental reason is to prevent human suffering and, and obviously, well, ensure that the earth, um, <laughs> you know, remains capable of, of supporting human life and supporting human civilization and all the social systems that we've built upon it. And so a focus on well-being kind of puts that into that context of like, so what is the goal? The goal is to prevent human suffering and is also to, to prevent kind of inequalities from, from escalating, I guess, in tackling net zero. And that's really important because there's different ways of reducing emissions and some can be really harmful as, you know, like an example of that would be the Gilets jaunes protests in, in France where some measures were being proposed and introduced that would have really caused harm. It's important to ensure that everyone has their needs met, has a decent quality of life at the same time as drawing down emissions. And these issues are fundamentally interlinked. If we don't think them together, the one is making it harder to reach the other, I suppose. And you talked a bit about sort of challenging the existing system. Um, and I think ecological economics and a sort of well-being focus, in some ways, it's almost trying to sort of overthrow capitalism, which is quite an ambitious goal. Is that your understanding of it? And, and what sort of chance of success do you think it's got? Well, chances of success is a <laughs> very tricky question. But um, I would agree that I think fundamental issues of capitalism and, and, and of the current economic and political economic system need to be tackled, including the pursuit of economic growth at any cost, the, the pursuit of profits, the current power structures, uh, the way that multinational companies influence politics and, and, and really stop any transition to sustainability because of their business models. So what does a PhD in ecological economics really look like? And, you know, it's such a grand challenge. What does your PhD actually involve? So in my PhD, I look at that big challenge in a, in a quite large picture way. So really, I look at how societies can reconcile meeting human needs with staying within planetary boundaries. So with getting to net zero 
and other elements of sustainability like like biodiversity although my focus is on energy which is kind of the the system that is central in, in producing emissions currently so central for climate change um, but also involved in a lot of other environmental problems and i look specifically at how what we call provisioning systems would have to change to enable societies to do both to meet human needs and get to a low carbon or zero carbon operation of the economy our research starts from the assumption of uh, that a fundamental end a fundamental goal or purpose that that should be prioritized is meeting human needs so that's food and water obviously that involves education and healthcare that involves housing and it's looking at the provisioning of food the provisioning of shelter the provisioning of healthcare and then looks at kind of systemic factors systems but also kind of macro economic macro political factors such as inequality democracy governance but also kind of more physical factors like access to electricity and how they are involved in meeting human needs and how different constellations can be more or less amenable to to meeting needs in a low carbon way so like one of the things that that i've found so far in my phd research is for example inequality is really harmful for meeting needs and detrimental for meeting needs in a low carbon way so like if you want to design a system that's kind of amenable that's aligned with low carbon human well-being you better get rid of your inequalities or like you reduce them massively for example and your work doesn't stop there so alongside your research you've been doing a variety of activism from co-founding a community group to helping develop a bill that's recently been tabled in parliament can you tell me a bit about your involvement in the climate and ecological emergency bill so I guess I was involved in in the early days of it. The bill essentially is a way to tie government to more ambitious targets for tackling climate change that are commensurate with the challenge and sort of meeting it in a fair way during the UK's fair contribution, as well as tackling the issue of biodiversity loss, so the ecological emergency, basically, and tackling that in a way that gives everyone a voice. That's where this idea of the Citizens' Assembly comes in. So a bit more than a year ago, a group started from Extinction Rebellion calling for sort of expert workshops to think about the design of these citizens' assemblies. How can we do them in a way that they meet the target, that they're fair and inclusive? I was actually very lucky to to end up um, at this, this workshop because because a colleague of mine kind of couldn't go and, and, and suggested that I go instead. So that's the kind of the, the democracy side of the bill. And then um, at the same time, I was helping scientists for extinction rebellion to kind of inform their actions i suppose or at least their understanding of climate change and their their pr essentially by kind of trying to help them understand and be updated about the the most recent part of the science and this group was contacted by the people who who were working on this bill and were saying like can you help us understanding what it would take to put a, a decent plan for tackling the climate and ecological emergency into law what are the factors what are the criteria that it needs to contain from a sort of scientific perspective to be sound. And what are the next steps for that bill now that it's been tabled? So the bill is a private member's bill, so that means it will still need to be voted on in Parliament. It was tabled by a coalition of 12 MPs originally across six political parties, now all political parties, except for the Conservatives. So it's a really cross-party supported initiative. And so 
this bill will now need to get the support from a majority in parliament. So the important bit is to to convey the message of like, why do we need this bill? Why is what we've got currently not enough? So what would you say is the kind of key selling points for the bill? I think it does basically what is needed or a, a huge step towards what is needed by hardwiring the levels of reductions that are needed to meet the internationally agreed Paris target and hardwiring to that the principle of equity and and common but differentiated responsibility that is central to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So that's the target side of of things. And then it it speaks to the the way that we're going to meet these targets. And it draws up criteria, again, putting a lot of focus on the idea of of justice and equity, Um, taking responsibility internationally for our supply chains, for our imports, which currently are being ignored in this context. And also saying like within the UK, these measures must not harm anyone, must not in particular harm deprived and marginalized communities and must make everyone's voices heard. So that's again, this idea of the citizens assembly of like the best possible representation of people to deliberate on what are the measures that are going to tackle these issues. And because they're such fundamental issues and such massive challenges, it's really going to change all of society, all aspects of society, all aspects of, of public life. And that's why I think it's so essential to really give everyone a voice in this. That's great. Well, thanks for explaining. It sounds uh, very exciting and, and best of luck with that bill. You also helped to found Our Future Leads, a grassroots community action group trying to tackle the climate crisis. And about a year ago, I interviewed David Barnes about Our Future Leads for Climactic, just a few months after it had formed. Can you give us a quick recap of, of how the group came together and what you're setting out to do? Sure, yeah. So it, it came together in a, in a quite special moment in history, I suppose, which was um, the moment that the climate emergency, I guess, got taken more seriously and really kind of had this surge and scientists raising the alarm. So it was the moment after um, the IPCC 1.5 degree report, which really made the challenge and the, the sort of the risks much more clear than previous reports had done as well as a real surge in, in environmental protest and environmental action, both involving the school strikes and youth strikes started by Greta Thunberg, as well as a surge in, in actions by environmental movements in the UK, very prominently by Extinction Rebellion. And so there was this, this movement for declaring a climate emergency. And so this group said, well, we need this for lead. So it was born out of this campaign to get Leeds City Council to declare a climate emergency. Um, which was hugely successful. But then the realization was like, okay, this was only the first step. And um, now we need to make sure that that it's more than words. So we really came together to say like, this needs to be delivered. It needs to be delivered in the timescale that is, that is necessary, that is commensurate with the challenge. It needs to be delivered in a socially just way. It needs to be delivered in a way that gives everyone a voice in saying, what, how are we going to change leads? Um, and that involves the people as well in delivering those changes. So that's where we started. And then, yeah, we had like kind of this big launch event and then had a couple of, of events to kind of articulate our vision, which was fundamentally a really positive vision of change that goes beyond climate 
and and says like what we need is a is also a safe and livable and a better leads a socially just leads so again in tackling climate change also tackling issues of social deprivation of air quality which is a massive issue in leads of the transport system so yeah tying together lots of things into a positive vision knowing we can have a better leads that's great and recently our future leads won two and a half million pounds of national lottery funding for local climate action which is fantastic can you tell me about what you have planned for that money yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's really exciting. We all still can't really believe it. So it's, um, I should say, it's not just our future leads. It's our future leads uh, as part of a partnership of four lead organizations that have been sort of centrally involved, but a broader partnership of, of 40 organizations across the city. So it's our future leads, voluntary action leads, Together for Peace and Leads Title. Yeah, to kind of run a five-year program, which we hope is really kind of going to put the basics in place to transform leads across all scales you know but with this focus on community hopefully tapping into this like new spirit from the covid crisis you know where there's like mutual help where there's also i think a better understanding of like what do we actually need what are the essentials so what we want to do in this is to help foster climate action at a community level so any one community can't really solve the issue of transport in leads so it's it's to give them the tools and the connections and, and, and empower them to get involved in these campaigns that bring change across the city. And then another element of, of the program is to kind of bring all actors involved in, in climate together to kind of create this vision and this plan for how we can transform leads and, and yeah, really try to build a movement, essentially. That's the idea. It's like build a people-powered movement, but make that movement you know, or work together with Leeds City Council as well and with the Climate Commission and with business and other organisations. That's brilliant. Thanks for that. And uh, yeah, again, super exciting and can't wait to, to see what, what happens next. As a final question then, can you tell me a bit about how you found doing a PhD alongside being a, a climate activist? Yeah, great question. <laughs> I suppose everything from really exciting and, 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 and valuable, fulfilling to quite challenging as well. I mean, like, I find it necessary. So, like, I wanted to work in a field and do research in a field where I think here is where the, the main questions lie, right? Again, about the economic system and how it relates to politics, how it relates to, to environment and, and these kind of things. Um and so like dealing with that, I think it's it's absolutely key to also be involved in activism that is, you know, that is different from the type of outreach that we traditionally see in academia, because out of an awareness of how social change happens or doesn't happen, we know that just writing our academic papers, change won't happen. Like, so saying, here is a good idea for how you could uh, change society. That's not going to do much. So trying to push through changes against a very powerful orthodoxy that is that doesn't want to change right that wants to maintain the status quo wants to maintain industries that benefit from the from the status quo so it's really about sort of making these messages heard empowering 
activist organizations with the understanding of the economy of the system that that they need to kind of focus their action into meaningful struggles uh, like i think this bill is a really positive example of that um, like if you think for example the the occupy movement i think one of the issues was they didn't have a, a positive vision they didn't have sort of like concrete demands of like how things could change so so i think one really important bit of this sort of science activism interface where i partly see myself is to say like what are the main things that we need to demand how how do we need to sort of embed our activism in an understanding of change historically and sort of like politically but yeah it is challenging i'm not going to deny that because the need for activism is so massive there are, there are no limits to doing more right and like there's such a such a huge need to change things in all sorts of way and and as someone who cares about that and who can also maybe bring some kind of expertise or knowledge to the table you know you, you could spend 27 hours a day trying to help all sorts of struggle um, but of course you need to uh, i need to reconcile that with doing a phd and, and sort of getting a phd at the end of the day so it's yeah it's about i guess finding a balance which sounds nice on paper or like it's easy to say and is, is hard when when you see oh my god there's this important campaign happening there's this whatever this bill that needs kind of or like whatever something that that needs to happen now um how can i say no to that you know there was a moment in my phd where I was, where i had to kind of ask myself like can i park my activism and and like because it was kind of getting a bit you know my phd was kind of getting a bit <laughs> um too little attention i suppose but i I couldn't. I couldn't park the activism because th I think we are in this emergency and the time is now and starting to kind of put my energy, of course, into changes a few years later is not enough, is not sort of in line with how I understand myself and sort of what I value. Phenomenal. Well, um, I must say, I think your ability to blend and juggle both your work as a PhD researcher and community activism is is awesome so well done and and do keep it up <laughs> thanks i'll try my best <laughs> and i mean that's something i'm trying to balance as well between work and activism so it's it's inspiring to to hear what you're doing finally is there anything you'd like to plug for our listeners to find out more about any of your work and or activism sure yeah so i've recently worked on an article actually for the conversation trying to explain really what is in this climate and ecological emergency bill that i was speaking about and why is it important so um, i'd recommend taking a look at that and if you want if you can support the campaign of course and uh, i guess another article i wrote for the conversation around some research that i've done I guess, again, at the interface between science and activism around this, the airport expansion in Leeds, um, which you can find yeah, at the conversation. That's great. Well, thanks you very much for joining me, Yafim, and good luck with everything. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. It's been, it's been a pleasure. That was PhD researcher Yafim Vogel from the Sustainability Research Institute at the University of Leeds. To round off this episode... I thought it'd be great to hear from the sustainability team at the University of Leeds, who are leading the drive to get the university to net zero emissions by 2030. Joining me now is Dr. Louise Ellis, Director of the Sustainability Service at the University of Leeds. Thank you for joining me, Louise. Hi, Simon. Firstly, can you give us a sense 
of the overall aim of the sustainability service at the university, which you lead? Yeah, sure. So our role is to um, help the university realise our fundamental commitment to creating a positive value in society, making sure that we have positive impact through our environmental, economic, social and cultural um, activities. So we've just been hearing about how our researchers are helping tackle climate change in Bradford, Leeds and across Yorkshire. But I know climate action is also a core part of the university's mission. Can you tell me about the whole institutional approach to responding to the climate crisis? Yeah, sure. So we have set out um, seven guiding principles by which the whole institution will um, address the climate crisis. And those principles cover, as you have have talked about further in the podcast, our research, but also how and what we teach our students, how we operate within the city and what we're going to do about our own direct and indirect carbon emissions and also what we do around our investment portfolio. And what sort of challenges the COVID pandemic posing for sustainability teams like yours and how is it affecting some of your climate ambitions? It's quite an interesting one, actually. So we're very lucky at the University of Leeds that COVID and and the current crisis that we're facing due to that has not in any way wavered our commitment to um, addressing the climate crisis. So we are still looking at the impact of immediate decisions within the crisis and what that means from a climate perspective um, and also how we can make sure that any decisions we make coming out of the crisis, you know, address our climate commitment as, as much as they do our other commitments around health, safety and the academic mission of the university. Um, it has meant that we need to be really agile. So some of the things that we would have done physically, we've not been able to do. So some of our um, interventions in new buildings are not going to happen when they would have done because the new buildings aren't happening. But what it has allowed us to do is address challenges around transport probably earlier than we would have done before. So um, it's not really a challenge, but it's just something that we we have to face is to be really agile and to make sure we we can change our approach and our actions as quickly as we possibly can to not have any you know undue detriment to, to our climate commitments. And following on from that, I guess there's a lot of discussion of build back better and adopting some of these changes going forwards. Do, do you think the university and kind of the way it operates, the way that staff and students interact with it, do you think there will be lasting changes beyond this? Absolutely. I think they will. Um, and I think that they will be positive ones. I think what we do have to do and what the institution is looking at and what a number of us are focusing on at the moment is how we can learn from what's happening during this period. And that's, you know, both the physical nature of climate, but also the equity and equality issues that affect our communities and how that then affects our environmental impacts. And it is absolutely at the kind of decision making table at the moment. We're even using those words build back better as you know of the analysis that we're that we're making so I think eventually it will it will be a good outcome I think. That's great and we heard earlier about Dr Kat Scott's iTree project on campus which is a collaboration with the sustainability service through your living lab scheme. What's the idea behind these living labs and what are some of the other exciting projects underway at the moment? 
So the principle of Living Lab is that we we use the amazing intelligence that is part of our university community. So that's not only our research staff, but also our students and also linking that with the amazing kind of operational staff that we have and bringing the whole community together to address sustainability issues and, of course, including in climate. Um, and we also extend that approach to a more city approach to and working with city partners to to look at things that we can try differently. The basic thought process was, why not try it here? So, you know, universities are renowned for going around the world and, and doing research and trying things out. And it's, well, actually, we are a huge community. You know, we're more than 49,000 people. We've got a big estate. You know, we should be trying things now and we should be showing other institutions that you can be brave and take risks. And actually, there's there's more reasons to try things than just the return that you get on your pound. So by doing living lab approach, we get strategic intelligence. Our researchers learn on the ground and our students get exposed to, you know, what it means to do these things outside of their textbooks. We currently have one where we're working with the Environment Agency um, and other local partners around flood alleviations and drainage. And that's um, up at our Brian Lee Cycle Centre. So we're doing natural drainage rather than kind of manuf- kind of manufactured built drainage um, and then linking that with biodiversity. We're also looking at some wider forestation projects, looking at carbon kind of storage through through trees in that respect. We are looking at some kind of smart city type approach and how we can work with the council and linking campus into more kind of smart kind of approaches to life. Excellent. And I think we're all aware the university can't solve this challenge on its own. It's just too vast. Can you expand a bit more about how you're working with other organisations in Leeds and the wider region to respond to climate change? Yes, yeah, so like you say, it's you know we could do everything perfectly if that existed, and it would it wouldn't really make a difference. Um, but actually, I think the crux is that is there isn't a perfect answer, and we're all learning together. So we're working with other key anchor institutions across Leeds and the city region to share examples of what you can do but also you know share doing it so we're working in partnership with the Leeds NHS Trust at sharing some transport measures and looking at how maybe our staff can travel together to reduce impact outside the the climate arena but and connected we lead a city-wide plastics network with the council NHS Trust, Yorkshire Water. We also link in our researchers into other organisations so we can share our knowledge. And we're also working really closely as an education sector to make sure that other universities, both in the region and across the UK, are sharing experiences, you know, the same kind of technologies so we can make sure that we, we mirror each other, even down to the idea of talking about how do we actually quantify and measure net zero so at least we're all talking about the same thing and it just makes life slightly easier to to move forward excellent uh, what's the best way for listeners to keep up to date with some of your work so they can sort of follow us on social media we're active on on twitter we have amazing young people who are really active on instagram and we also have a, a community newsletter which if you bob onto the sustainability website you can um, subscribe to that brilliant well, it's great to hear the university taking this so seriously. Very best of luck to you and thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, Simon. 
That was Dr. Louise Ellis, Director of the Sustainability Service at the University of Leeds. So that's all we've got time for today. Big thanks if you made it this far, and I hope you enjoyed the show. To find out more about our work at the Priestley International Centre for Climate, you can go to our website, climate.leeds.ac.uk, or follow us on Twitter, at Priestley Centre. Whether you're in Leeds, Bradford, Australia, or anywhere else in the world, thanks very much for listening, and I hope you have a great day. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.